You're listening to Engage, the podcast for Delta pilots. Here's your host, Ryan Argenta. We're back with the Engage podcast. This is the tentative agreement series. Back with the negotiating chairman, Eric Criswell, touching into section five, improved per diem, both international and domestic. It's now tied to the government rate. Can you talk to that? Yeah, sure can. So that's been a priority since I've done this work. We've been talking about this. It was not an easy concept to convince them to go forward with. This one took quite a bit of effort at the table to make look the way it does. In previous contracts, we've gotten whatever, a nickel or a dime of per diem increase. And that's kind of just been how per diem has been handled. This puts us at a year one, a 40 cent increase to per diem, but then it, it increases with the meal rates as well. We established 90% of the meal rate just because there's some thought that if, if we get these crew meals, which that's another provision that we've negotiated in this deal, crew meals in theory, the value of those need to be deducted from per diem. We didn't want to put anybody in a situation where there was a tax liability for per diem, not knowing everyone's situation. So we made the decision to go 90% to make sure we never ran up on that issue. But at 90%, it actually does still provide a year one 40 cent increase. And in a lot of cases, these MNIE rates really haven't adjusted yet for the inflationary effects. So they kind of lag, of course, their government rates. So they adjust every year at the end of the government's fiscal year. So I expect this is going to continue to have a bunch of upward pressure as a result of the inflation we've all been experiencing. Now, the international is the one that's very interesting. So everyone's aware the international markets have really been affected probably more so than the United States as a result of COVID, especially in Asia. And Asian per diem rates and the MNIE rates are traditionally some of the very highest in the whole world. But right now they're not. Right now they're not because a lot of those cities are shut down. The economic activity is very limited. So, for instance, in Incheon, where pre-COVID we had most of our Pacific layovers, their rates, I believe, currently are about half of what they were pre-COVID. And that's just as a result of economic activity being suppressed. So if we run this rate out into the future and those rates normalize to what they were pre-COVID, this rate goes up significantly. So right now it looks like a modest increase. It goes from 290 up to 335 on our international per diem, which is a 45 cent increase. It does not take much for that rate to go over $4 an hour and even climb higher than that with just a few of these cities going back online and the effects of COVID being relieved on those MNIE rates. And those will adjust automatically. It's not something you have to go back and renegotiate, right? Nope. Every year we do a reconciliation with the company on the number of layovers. So we do a weighted average of how many layovers are in each one of these cities. And then we take a weighted average of their MIE rates. So again, it was as our Pacific network rebuilds and becomes a bigger part of our international network, it's going to have a higher influence on what this rate is. And the European cities as well, a lot of those rates are significantly lower than pre-COVID right now. So we're really, we're establishing this at a good time. It did provide a pretty good 45 cent increase on day one in that rate, but there is a lot of upside in that uh, the international rate by the end of the contract. Okay. And we're talking pennies on the dollar here, 45 cents here, 45 cents there, but currently the reality, so $68 a day domestic, and now we're up to $80 a day for a 24 hour period international. By the way, that's income that comes to you without any taxes on it. So you right. get all those dollars. Yeah. And I'll hold the jokes. <laughs> you don't have to pack Chef Boyardee in your backpack anymore. I'm sure, um, I'm sure some still will, but yeah, I don't think you have to. Yeah. Now you have the options. So meals, you mentioned crew meal improvements there. Let's go there since you brought it up. Yeah. Crew meals have been the priority. There are currently very limited 
instances, especially where a domestic pilot at Delta receives a crew meal. Of course, you've got a five and a half hour requirement on a leg length and you'll get a meal or an international turn. But other than that, it's very difficult to get a crew meal as a domestic pilot. Of course, international pilots on longer legs, they're, they're fed at least once, sometimes twice under the current contract. The new provision adds significant amount, like multiples of what we currently have domestically. And it's an overlapping set of triggers that trigger when a meal is due. So let's talk about the existing one, which is the leg length. That's currently five and a half hours. We've reduced that to four hours. So any leg length of four hours or more, you're due a crew meal, no, no questions asked. In addition, we've created a breakfast provision that says if you depart anytime between 4 a.m. and 8 a.m., you're due a breakfast. The one caveat with that is we have some stations that they just flat out don't have catering at the airport. So if you're in a very small market and, uh, and they have no catering, they don't even load drinks in a lot of these locations, they don't have the means to provide the breakfast, then you'll have to be provided on your next leg. So a good example of this is let's say you're departing early morning from Tallahassee and you're inbound to Atlanta. You may not get the meal in Tallahassee, but you'll get one on your next leg when, when you fly out of Atlanta, because they can clearly accommodate it there. The caveat with that one is also, if you have an hour, 30 minute ground time and you didn't get the meal at your departure station, you won't get it on the next leg. So if they can give it to you on that first leg, they have to give it to you. There's no hour 30 carve out for that. It's only if you didn't get it on the first leg, the assumption is you're going to want to eat terminal food anyway. You'd rather have that than what's on the airplane. You want to get a hot meal in the terminal. If you got an hour and a half sit, there's likelihood is that you're probably going to want to do that rather than wait till your next leg to get that breakfast anyway. So that's the very narrow instance. If you didn't get it on your first leg and you have over an hour and a half sit, then you're not going to get it on the next leg. But and that's uh, a scheduled sit. It is a scheduled sit. Yeah, Ryan. Yeah. So if you run in late operations or something going on, that's separate. But I want to repeat this because this, this is frankly, it's surprising to me, but any flight that departs between 4 a.m. and 8 a.m. local time is subject to a meal. You get one meal per pilot. So in my small brain, if I'm departing Atlanta to Birmingham at 5.30 a.m. and you had a 30-hour layover, do you get a breakfast? Yeah. Yeah, you get a breakfast if you depart. <laughs> okay. Atlanta, Atlanta has the means to get you a meal and you're departing between 4 and 8 a.m. So yeah, you absolutely get fed on that flight. Okay. I mean, that's a great provision as far as the breakfast goes. There are other triggers too. So you have a duty day trigger. So as soon as you hit six and a half hours of duty, it doesn't matter what your leg lengths are, if it's breakfast or any of that, you're entitled to a meal once you hit six and a half hours of duty. And then once you go past 10 hours of duty, you're actually do two meals during that duty period. And there's some language that says, Hey, these should be delivered to you as close to regular meal times as possible. Understanding our schedules are sometimes not capable of that, but you're due one meal beyond six and a half hours of duty and two meals beyond 10. Now the caveat for the hour and a half sit also exists for that. So if you have an hour and a half sit, the assumption is, Hey, I'd rather go grab a meal in the terminal than eat what's on the airplane. I will say though, that we did put language in there that says these are not just box lunches or a, a turkey sandwich on wonder bread. These are exactly what the first class passengers would expect. Even if the first class passengers aren't getting a, a meal on that flight, it is the quality of a meal that would be expected by first class passengers on a domestic Delta flight in that case. There is also a provision that says if there's a service failure, Delta owes you 10 bucks because you had to go procure your own meal. That would be in addition to your per diem. And it's written in a way that does not give discretion to Delta. They can't just say, you know what, we're not going to schedule meals. We'll just pay the 10 bucks. They don't have that ability. It says for service failure only, which would mean, hey, the caterer messed up. 
that maybe a tree dropped on the ground or it wasn't loaded in the cart for some sort of a service failure. It was ordered, but it wasn't delivered. It has to be ordered is really the point. And it has to be as a result of someone's service failure for you not to get it. In that case, you get 10 bucks, but that's not a discretionary thing. The company cannot just unilaterally decide to not board crew mails and then just pay a 10 bucks instead. Okay. Improvements there for sure. And I think this is going, everybody's thinking it right now. And that is you're going to have to massage the situation with the flight attendants who are not getting meals, foot stomp for them to maybe get a union or a contract. But I think this is where captain's authority, or you can politely explain, Hey, under this provision, we get a breakfast, please put it aside for us. Or, Hey, we get a breakfast and a lunch later on, please put it aside for us. That's just going to have to come from us and to be delicate with it. But I think that's that captain's responsibility to tee that up during the briefing. Yeah. I think once people get familiar with what the provisions are, you'll kind of have a sense for when you're due a meal and when you're not. And if you know you're due a meal, I think it's good diligence as part of your pre-flight to say, Hey, can I check on my meal and make sure it's here? I want to make sure everybody's getting fed. And again, like you, you hit on it perfectly. The captain's authority rules the day there. If, if it's not boarded, it's certainly within your right to check into why and see if you can resolve it. Yep. Agreed. Since we're in section five, lodging and expenses, let's touch on hotels. What are the wins in hotels? There are a couple. First off, training hotels. So we secured it. Even local pilots will be able to get it a night before and the night after in their training hotels, regardless if they live local or not. We also made sure that all pilots who are getting a hotel in training are going to get per diem while they're there. There's some cases right now where pilots are in training, they're not getting per diem if they live local. That now extends to all training facilities. I mean, of course, we're talking about a training facility in Salt Lake, your neck of the woods opening up there in the next couple of years, so it'll apply there as well. But uh, some nice things for locals who are coming to training currently don't get those benefits. They're going to get them going forward. There's also a couple of improvements for international pilots. The first is there's this situation that a lot of our pilots find themselves in where they fly across the ocean all night long and they wait for the van and they go through the whole customs mess, get out of the airport and head to their hotel. And then they ride an hour and a half in the van and uh, show up in the lobby and it looks like a homeless shelter. There's 40 crews waiting on their rooms because they're not ready yet. What we've gotten is language that says in that situation, if they're telling you, we don't have a room for you yet, you've got a 45 minute clock that starts. And it's from your scheduled arrival on the sign-in sheets. I always say what time this crew is in anticipated to arrive. So that's the time that it's based on. But if it says, Hey, I'm scheduled to arrive the hotel at 8am by 845, I better be in my room. And if I'm not, I have the ability to walk, procure a room on my own and expense it to Delta. And that would include the transportation if needed to get there. Sometimes you can walk right across the street and it's an acceptable hotel. You can do that too. But you now have contract language that says Delta has to reimburse you in that situation. The one requirement of the pilot is that at the 30 minute mark. So let's say your scheduled arrival is 8 a.m. At 8.30, you get on the phone, you try to get all the crew accommodations. We all know the wait times are what they are. So if you are on hold for 15 minutes and they don't pick up, you walk. If you get a hold of them and you make them aware of your situation, they're supposed to start working on an alternate plan for you. But at the 45 minute point, if it hasn't been resolved, you have the ability to take off. This is important to note because we run into this all the time internationally, especially in a handful of cities. So just to clarify this two parts here, and I want to plug the crew assist app because that's very good. And sometimes that is a shorter wait than waiting on hold. But first you get to the curb, transportation's not curbside within 20 minutes. 
you can take an Uber or a taxi and procure your own transportation. It'll be reimbursed by the company, no questions asked. Second, you've now arrived to the hotel at your scheduled arrival time. You have 45 minutes or they have 45 minutes to get you into a room. A lot of our stations, I'll just throw it out, London and Paris, historically have been over an hour. Sometimes I've waited up to three hours for a hotel. So at that point, you can get on the crew assist app or start talking to crew accommodations. Meanwhile, have an FO or have somebody on their phone trying to find another hotel and make a phone call and see if they have a room available. And at that 45 minute mark, you can get into a taxi, go to another hotel, check in, and that will be reimbursed by the company contractually compliant. Yep, that's exactly right. So in the scheduled arrival time is important. Sometimes in the winter or whatever, if you got a kick and tailwind coming over and you get in an hour early and you end up at the hotel an hour early, there may be some situations like that continue where they weren't expecting you, you showed up early. In that situation, it's based on the time you were anticipated to arrive, not the time that you actually did. So that's a good little caveat, but most of these situations aren't resulting from that. Most of these situations are resulting from these hotels. They basically hot bunk these rooms and they stack these crews on top of each other and sell more rooms than they actually have. And they just kind of fold it all together. And the pilot's the one that is left holding the bag, sitting in the lobby, just waiting for the next room to open up. Yeah. I actually just heard a story of a captain who, after changing hotels three times, ended up sleeping in a dirty hotel room. There was two beds. One was untouched, but still, I mean, come on. So this will alleviate a lot of those problems. And then the flip side of that is if you have a late arrival, that scheduled arrival time is still important. If scheduled arrival was at 8 a.m. and you showed the hotel at 10, then that room should be ready and waiting for you with no problems. Yeah, that's exactly right. They should have held that room. If they give it to somebody else and you're sitting there at 10 and they're telling you it's going to be a wait, you've got full access to this provision. Very good. Yeah, thanks some, for this. Some pilots will use discretion and say, hey, look, it seems to me like they're 15 minutes from handing me a key. It doesn't mean you have to walk at 45 minutes. It means use your discretion. You now have contract language that supports you if you make that decision. Yeah, absolutely. And final point on that is it's reasonable lodging. Therefore, you could leave the Holiday Inn and go to the Ritz-Carlton if it's the only property available with rooms ready for you. Yeah, that's exactly right. The reasonable man theory applies here. If they have a room for you and uh, your judgment, that's the best option, then absolutely. Very good. The other provision that I wanted to mention too is in Amsterdam. Everyone's that's been there is familiar. We have a kind of a non-contractually standard hotel there called the Nord. It's in a suburb. Some pilots like it, but the, the vast majority of feedback is that it's in an area that is not known to be the safest area. We have security guards at the hotel that are required and it's a very lackluster, call it a two-star hotel. And there's a lot of desire to get out of there and make it a more normal layover experience in Amsterdam. So that's been done now too. We've eliminated the carve out that allowed that hotel in Amsterdam. And we've also set up a process that gives our hotel committee a certain amount of latitude to decide what hotels are going to be acceptable in Amsterdam. It's an awkward market because they don't have the number of rooms relative to the number of visitors that a lot of the other European markets have. So the likelihood is that the, just the volume of rooms that our pilots will use each night there extends to a larger number than most hotels can accommodate. So. It's likely we're going to have two, maybe even three on style hotels, but that's the goal here is to get back downtown in Amsterdam. So you don't have to ride a bike, or ride a ferry or ride a bus to go get dinner. You'll be able to just walk out the front door of the hotel and find some place close. So that happens by the summer of 2024. So there's a little bit of implementation. They have to run an RFP, they have to sign contracts and they have to phase out of the Nord in the meantime. So that process will kick off as soon as the contract starts and the layover experience in Amsterdam will be 
much improved going forward. Very good. Thanks for that. All right. A wealth of information there. Eric Criswell, the chairman of the negotiating committee. Thanks so much. On the next episode, we talk about vacations. And in following episodes, we talk about section eight deadheading and the new section 10 for seniority list instructors, line check pilots, and line validation pilots. And we move on to the heavy hitters of section 12 and 23 hours of service and scheduling. And of course, we're going to cover all the topics. So stick with us on the Engage podcast. This has been Engage, the podcast for Delta pilots. Thanks for listening. My name is Ryan Argenta. Stay safe and keep the rubber on the road. You're listening to Engage, the podcast for Delta pilots. Follow us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or your favorite podcast platform and receive notifications when a new episode is available.